Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Good morning. Um, this is uh, your clergy team from the Gantt Chapel on Wednesday, January the 3rd, 2024. Um, and it's Shabbat, January the 6th, when this is playing. I just want to say this is uh, wonderful to be together for the first time in 2024 and to wish you a Shabbat Shalom for the first time in 2024. I thought for the new year, we would all use a tree, which is Torah Lishma. I just studying an unusually evocative and unusually rich piece of Torah. It's a, it's a story that many of us know. Uh, we know it even as kids uh, in terms of legend, but there's actually an address for it in the canon. This is the famous story of Solomon slicing the baby down the middle. Um, and it's always brought up as a sign of his discernment and his wisdom. It's actually very layered and very troubling and very... Um, uh, complex in many ways, and, the, and what we want to do today is look at this famous story and then uh, mine it for the wisdom that it can bring all of us as we think about what leadership and what wisdom look like for today. So let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Baruch so this story uh, suffers from its familiarity, and we always hear it in oral form before we read it. Um, it is the Haftorah. Uh, it's the Haftorah for Miketz. Um, and the connection, all the commentators point out, is that in Miketz, uh, Pharaoh has his dream, and Pharaoh's dreams are introduced by Vaikatz Paro, and this Haftorah begins with Vaikatz Shlomo, so Solomon has a dream, Pharaoh has his two dreams, and that's the point of connection. Unfortunately, we almost never get a chance to read this Haftorah because most often Miketz is also the second Shabbat of Hanukkah, and so there's a special Hanukkah Haftorah. This past year, when what turned me on to it was Hanukkah had ended the day before. It had ended the Friday, December the 15th. So December the 16th, we actually got to read the Haftorah from Miketz on Parshat Miketz, and I'm reading again, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is a gold mine. So the story we know, the story is uh, two women come to King Solomon, and each says, hey, King, this baby, and they come with one baby, and they say, this baby is mine, and this other woman, she claims it's hers, but her baby died. And the other woman says, no, 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 King, you got it all wrong. This baby is mine, and this other woman, her baby died, and she's trying to steal my baby. It's my baby, King. It's my baby. No, it's my baby. That's the presenting problem for King Solomon. And this is before DNA tests. And, of course, he says, fetch the sword. Okay? Uh, we all know what happens next. What I want to do is we're going to actually read the story, as Shai Held would ask us to do, slowly. Um, but there's actually a prequel before the story, um, and, and we're going to start with that. And in the prequel, King Solomon is actually skating on thin ice, or to use a different metaphor, uh, he is behind on the count in baseball. He's 0-2. He does two things that are contrary to the laws of the Torah 
King Solomon, first of all, marries a woman who is an Egyptian, um, and Deuteronomy specifically says a king ought not to marry too many women, uh, too many foreign women especially. It's going to um, cause his heart to go astray, and the Torah says that explicitly, and King Solomon st starts here marrying the Egyptian princess, and he ends up marrying a lot of foreign women, and they, in fact, turn him into an idolater. By the end of his reign, he's an, a full-blown idolater. Second of all, as you know, one of the Torah's uh, Deuteronomy central preoccupations is centralizing uh, worship at the place where God will choose to attach his name, the temple in Jerusalem. And the book of Deuteronomy says over and over again, don't just offer up sacrifices any what which way. You have to take it to Jerusalem. And here King Solomon is offering up sacrifices any what which way. So he's 0 and 2 in the count, and then he has a dream. And let's take a look at it. So um, Solomon allied himself by marriage with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He married Pharaoh's daughter, brought her to the city of David to live there until he had finished building his palace and the house of the Lord and the walls around Jerusalem. So that's strike one. Um, strike two. The people, however, continued to offer sacrifices at the open shrines because up to that point, no house had been built for the name of the Lord. And Solomon, though he loved the Lord and followed the practices of his father David, also sacrificed and offered at the shrines. And it goes on to say, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the largest shrine. On that altar, Solomon presented a thousand burnt offerings. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And so here you have this context where Solomon is offering big sacrifices at some local place, which Deuteronomy specifically says don't do, right? And in big numbers, a thousand, a thousand burnt offerings. And Solomon then has a dream. And God says in the dream, ask what shall I grant you? And Solomon said, um, Solomon said, you... Ask what shall I grant you? Solomon said, You dealt most graciously with your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness, in integrity of heart. You've continued this great kindness to him by giving him a son, namely me, to occupy his throne, as is now the case. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. In other words, I, Solomon, am the king. But I'm a young lad with no experience in leadership. What do I know about being king? What do I know about being king? I just don't know enough. How am I supposed to lead the people of Israel? I'm a kid. You know, I'm, I'm a kid. What do I know about this? Okay? Um, and you're asking me, God, can I have any wish? Okay, here's my wish. Um, your servant, namely me, finds himself in the midst of the people you have chosen, a people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Grant, then, your servant, namely me, Solomon, an understanding mind to judge your people, to distinguish between good and bad, for who can judge this vast people of yours? So Solomon says, Give me an understanding heart, an understanding mind. What I need, God, is wisdom. I need true discernment so that I can do my job. Let's just pause here, right? Um, so the setting for this famous story that we all know about is um, a guy who's, you know, got this job before his time, and he's already kind of screwing it up. He's already, as a young man, bringing in a foreign wife. You know, Deuteronomy says don't do that. He's already offering lavish sacrifices in the wrong places. Deuteronomy says don't do that. And then he has this dream, 
And God says, whoa, what can I do for you? And he says, give me a leif shomea. Uh, what do you think of that? And what do you think of that as the context for the famous case of fetch me the sword? Yeah, Dan? Yeah. So first of all, I think, I think Solomon is excellent at pulling the wool over God's eyes. Because if we actually go back to the top of this page, um, you know, uh, before, before chapter 3, we see that Solomon is actually not afraid to, uh, to show leadership. So, uh, you know, he actually, he actually causes the death of someone who did not uh, fulfill an, an oath that he had made. He traveled, he left and, left and came back, reading that section. So, and then he says, well, you know, remember you said you would do this? And, and he said, uh, yes, 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 but now you brought down the wrath, the wrath on your own head. And now, I'm, and, and then Solomon goes and has a, uh, and sends someone to put, put this guy to death. So Solomon, ex he he um, he definitely shows um, that he actually knows how to be a leader and almost in a ruthless way already. And then the other part that's really really interesting is right at the beginning of chapter three, um, where it says that even uh, though he loved the Lord and followed the pra the practices of his father David, also sacrificed and offered at the at the shrines. Um, this is so apologetic. Why is it so apologetic right from the beginning? It's saying, you know, he, he's done wrong. We know that. And yet, uh, and yet we, it's already been established that, um, that, that Solomon is already, is already being forgiven right here, even though he's done these, these two things that he shouldn't do. So I that, think, that's the interesting beginning of the text. Yeah, I think that we should do one day a class on dreams because it's so fascinating and we can go into psychological aspects of it. Why do we dream certain things? Perhaps it's our conscious talking. And clearly, he's struggling with all these, his acts. He's, right. he's not a guy who says, I don't care, you know, what my right. dad has done and everything. He's actually asking for help. Yeah, I kind of want to go in a different direction than either of you here in that I kind of see him before this ask kind of as a local politician. Like he's a really, it's not so much, right? It's not that he's mentally anguished about the sacrifices and he loves God and oh boy, like why am I doing all this? He knows he loves God. He's sacrificing to God. But when he goes out into the land, he's going to do what the people there do. He's going to, you know, kiss the babies and shake the hands and eat the, you know, the Fritos or whatever it is that's the local... The pulled pork. The pulled pork, right? Yeah. He's, he's going to go out and he's going to make a nod to the people he finds in whatever place he does. And he views that kind of as his way to govern. He's okay. governing by being likable. And he realizes perhaps that there's something missing in that. And I kind of think about his wish as you know, all those jokes that talk about the three wishes you have with genies, right? right in the bottle, inevitably somebody gets them wrong, right? right? There's the one about the guy on the boat and his two friends wish themselves off the boat. And in the end he comes back and what's your wish? I wish my friends were here, right? right? Then they're all back on the boat again. We're, we're always getting that wish wrong. And what's so fascinating about about Solomon is he gets that wish right. He gets it right. He gets that like there's not substance to what he's doing and he has to get kind of a compass. What he's asking for is a compass for how do I not just put my finger up in the wind and figure out which way the wind is blowing. How do right. I find my own calling here as a so, leader? Right. So putting this all together um, what I hear you saying is it's the dream is somehow an acknowledgement of his vulnerability. 
or an acknowledgement of I need help. You know, it's a beautiful thing when a leader says I need help. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. And the dream is an, a version of that. And whether it's because he acted already perhaps too impetuously uh, or too uh, arrogantly for his own turf, or whether it's because he's just a hail fellow well-met politician at the state fair eating pulled pork and wondering where's the substance, he has a dream that says, God, I, geez Louise, I'm a king. I think I need more substance and I need, I need a moral compass. I need a lave shomea, an understanding heart. Um, and, and that's his dream. And then we'll pick it up. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. God said to him, because you asked for this, you did not ask for a long life. You did not ask for riches. You did not ask for the life of your enemies. But you asked for discernment in dispensing justice. I now do as you have spoken. I grant you a wise and discerning mind. Natati lecha lev chacham v'navon. I'm going to grant you a wise and discerning mind. There has never been anyone like you before, nor will anyone like you arise again. And also, by the way, P.S., I also grant you what you did not ask for, both riches and glory all your life, the like of which no king has ever had. And I will further grant you long life if you will walk in my ways and observe my commandments, as did your father David. That is the prequel. So he asks for Solomon says, Let, we'll go with the Elias thesis, I'm a little vulnerable, I need help. Um, we'll go with the Michelle thesis, he gets it right, you know, give, I'll give you three wishes, and he asks for one wish, give me an under discernment, Leif Shomea, right answer, ding, 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 you get it all. Um, and then, the that's all before the Haftorah. Now the Haftorah begins, and um, uh, the Haftorah begins, Ve'ikatz Shlomo. Solomon awoke, it was a dream, he went to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, sacrificed burnt offerings, presented offerings of well-being, and he made a banquet for all his courtiers. So he wakes up from the dream, and all of a sudden he rectifies and he remedies. Instead of offering sacrifices at the wrong place, he goes to Jerusalem, he follows the book, he's pious. This is like between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, when we really get our act together, we're really going to fix what we did wrong. He does it in Jerusalem. He stays at the inn ball. He's Mr. Pious. He's King Pious. And so far, so good. And then comes ordinary life. What happens next? So, Eliza, I'm going to ask you to read this story. Um, and now, this story is apparently an instantiation, embodiment of the dream of a Lev Shomea. So if you'll pick it up with page uh, 4, verse 16, later, two prostitutes. Later, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The first woman said, Please, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. On the third day after I was delivered, this woman also gave birth to a child. We were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, just the two of us in the house. During the night, this woman's child died because she lay on it. She arose in the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant was asleep and laid him in her bosom, and she laid her dead son in my bosom. When I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, it was not the son I had born. The other woman spoke up. No, the live one is my son, and the dead one is yours. But the first insisted, No, the dead boy is yours, and the mine is the living one. And they went on arguing before the king. The king said, 
One says, this is my son, the live one, and the dead one is yours. And the other says, no, the dead boy is yours and mine is the live one. So the king gave the order, fetch me a sword. A sword was brought before the king and the king said, cut the live child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Let's just pause, okay? Let's just pause here. Um, fetch me a sword. What is the, this is in its own context, an instantiation of the dream of a Lev Shomea. I need an understanding heart and a discerning mind. How is fetch me a sword the fulfillment of that dream? And what do you think of that? I mean, and, and it's great to have a, a, a gender mix here. And we're <laughs> different genders in different stages of life, including a very young mother of a, a very young child. Um, how, do you, how do you read this, 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 this story? So, I used to really find this as a beautiful story of wisdom, and you could just see these women. Now that I'm a mother of a very young son, I cannot wrap, like, this story makes no sense on any level. I mean, first of all, the idea that you're asleep with a newborn is, like, you're never asleep. Like, you're always somewhat awake. A little bit asleep, but you're, you're waking up, like, every, like, how often do you're waking up overnight, every single night with a newborn? And and also the way that his his wisdom only works on the basis of one mother struggling with serious postpartum depression or like having really lost her mind in a way that like it doesn't make sense a, a rational person would not say like it only works on the basis of one mother being totally irrational and willing to kill a child rather than have the other one have a live child, which is it, it just I I just ugh. So it it went to you. In other words, at one point in your life, this story was a lovely story of wisdom. Now that you're a young mother of a young son, it's a yuck. 100%. 100% yuck. Michelle, you read. I, I mean, I agree with the 100% yuck. <laughs> I, I, 100% like, yuck. Any, any story about killing babies is not a lovely story. So okay. we'll, start, we'll start there. Um, I, I'm really taken with Solomon in this role in, in just a... In Hebrew, up at the top of the page, it says that they're nashim zonot. It doesn't really capture it in the English that these are, we say these are two prostitutes who came. Right. But in the Hebrew, you get that these are two women who are prostitutes. Mm. And I feel like that matters. You don't have to say it in Hebrew that way. You could just say zonot. Like the idea that these are two women who are prostitutes feels to me like Solomon is seeing them more for their humanity than for their station, maybe even more for their humanity than whatever perhaps mental health ailment is going on or even the struggle that they're facing here. It's almost as he says, okay, these are two humans who I'm now going to try to tap into their humanity. And humanity would say that in the case of a baby being threatened, right, there's an instinctive response to that. Now, I don't know how he gets the idea that one of them would not have that, because even if it wasn't my belly, if Eder, right, was about to be cut in half with a sword, God forbid, I would say, no, please give him to Eliza. It's <laughs> 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 not. Um, so, so I do think that there's something missing in the fact that he assumes that the reaction from the one who says that the child is hers that's not 
is definitely going to be okay, fine, which it is, right? right? It somehow happens that this woman says, okay, fine, great, that sounds good to me. So it's strange credulity. At least just one quick, your, your read of this is the woman, the mother who says, fine, slice them in half, you're reading this as a case of serious postpartum depression, uh, postpartum mental illness, mental unwellness. And instead of seeing that, um, you know, he, King Solomon doesn't see that. And no, but, but I actually think it may, it may be that he does see that. The fact that he sees their humanity, he may see that one of them is, is somehow divorced from the normal human response right. and is acting in a way but, that but a can test I, Can I put a little, little thing that I never understood from this story? In theory, the person telling this story is the woman whose baby is still alive. All right? Right? And on verse 19, she says, during the night, um, we were, it says, at the middle of 18, we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. But if you go down four lines, it says, while your maidservant was asleep. So she doesn't make any sense no, either. By maidservant, is, she means herself. She's saying we were alone. It was me and my the maidservant. She's referring. Oh, to not another help. Yeah. So I want to, Eliza, pick up. So, so uh, with all the with all the challenges of this. Can I jump in for yeah. one other thing? Because yeah. there's also something that doesn't make sense to me, which is that like, if he's if Solomon's really responding from an insight, you know, insightful, discerning, wise mind, it boggles my mind that he doesn't spend more time like going through the process of like how old and how old was your baby and what were they wearing right. like there's a lot of like qu like if you're in that moment and and maybe maybe we can give the benefit of the doubt and maybe I love Michelle I love your read it gives him so much that, that he sees their humanity and that gives right. him the sense that he's going to respond there's a, a mother that is in a place of, of insanity and she has lost her mind and he responds from a place of insanity and meets her there and is able to get it that way. But then there's also part of me that's like, but you're acting insane, Solomon. Like there's a point where you're like, let's talk about this. Let's go through the details. Let's right. go like, let's walk through. There's so, other ways of yeah, thinking. Yeah. So let so me just, yeah. So I think your comment, Eliza, raises the question, how else might Solomon have handled it? What else might he have done? And what I hear you saying is he could have actually talked to each of them and said, you know, why don't we <laughs> Really difficult. But, yeah, but like, that's like, so, so, well, so So no, So he'll say to each of them, you know what, I want to have a private conversation with each of you. So please take a seat. Here's a cup of coffee. Here's some tea. Here's some uh, honey and ginger. Here's a sliced apple. I'm going to be with this other woman. He wasn't and Freud. Vice, and vice versa. And then he sits and talks and says, tell me your story, and then asks more questions and does some research and maybe even says, I mean, part of wisdom is um, one person is not a team, and maybe I need some colleagues, and let me, this is serious, life itself is at risk, this is, your hearts are at risk, this baby's at risk, I'm just, uh, I don't have enough wisdom in myself, let me, let me talk to you, let me get some therapists, let me get some wise people, let's get some conversation, let's get some consultation, and then once I do it with you, then I sit and talk who to would you. Do that's that? never gonna, wait, wait, that's who never would do that result. as a king? Right, and also that's, that's never going to result where you want to go. That's going to take you farther down the rabbit hole of both of their stories. Right. So interesting, I asked my children, I told my children last night that we right. were going to have this conversation, and I asked them, so what would happen... Like, not what could he have done instead, but what would happen if both women had said, okay, that works for me, right? right? And my children all responded, well, that's obvious. Then he would have said, thank you, this baby is a ward of the court. Like, they, they, their impression was that this was a test, 
And that if one woman failed, great, you've got your answer. But if both women fail, you also have got your answer. And that it's but, not that you slice, you, take, right. you don't actually slice the baby. It's a trial you, by But there's a third possibility, which is that both women succeed. What if both women had said, don't cut the baby? Like, that's I also totally possible. That doesn't happen here. I but it's entirely possible. And then what? Right. So okay. I honestly think that, that this is my view on this. I think that the story is brilliant. And I think that Solomon is acting like no other king has acted before. And it's, it's the idea of showing how smart he was. I doubt that he would say, okay, let's slice the baby in half. Right. So you're, what I hear you saying together with Michelle's kids is this, that his intent was always, I'm never going to actually slice the baby. Give me a sword so I can. It's kind of like the Sota trial by ordeal where you drink the, the potion with the, with the parchment dissolved. I'm going to do, this is a, it's like, it's like Abraham and the sword with Isaac. It's like a show of, 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 of theatrics and histrionics. And then that will, that will cause the real mother to show up. And if both of them say, okay, slice the baby in half, he puts the sword down and becomes the ward of the state. Okay. Um, let's just figure out, in addition though, to the, it's, it, what happens is, um, how it's received by Israel. So, um, Lisa, pick up with verse 26. But the woman whose son? But the woman whose son was the live one pleaded with the king, for she was overcome with compassion for her son. Please, my lord, she cried, give her the live child, only don't kill it. The other insisted, it shall be neither yours nor mine. Cut it in two. Then the king spoke up. Give the live child to her, he said, and do not put it to death. She is its mother. When all Israel heard the decision that the king had rendered, they stood in awe of the king, for they saw that he possessed divine wisdom to execute justice. And one more sentence. King Solomon was now king over all Israel. Right. It ends with Vayi HaMelech Shlomo Melech Al Kol Yisrael. And we Jews are a diverse lot. Um, and we have differences of opinion. And here this act was so, is, the, the reception of it, the way it landed, is that this act was so utterly brilliant. Like, oh my God, divine wisdom in a king that a hundred Jews out of a hundred said, he's my guy. That's how it ends. In other words, this is his, like, David becomes David when he slays Goliath and with five smooth stones, and Solomon becomes King Solomon with this moment. So, Eliza, your read was it was a yuck story, and yet the reception at the time and the canonical reception of it, because this is, this is the Haftorah, is this, this yuck moment is what made him king, how do you process that dissonance? I feel like there are lots of reasons people gravitate towards leaders, and I, I don't get it. I, I, like, it's funny. I, if you asked me five years ago, I would have been like, I, I see it. He's, he's able to see these people. He's able to judge. I, like, now I'm just like, ugh. Like, I don't, like, this is just a gross story. It's not, for me, it's not a model of wisdom. It's not him acting in justice. Like, it's just, it's... It's pushing people and and sending people in a horrific mental possibility for the sake of figuring something out that could have been discernible another way. Do you think it maybe has to do with his ability to step into the breach here in the sense that he is not afraid to step into something messy and hard and 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 impossible? to understand from outside of the situation and say, we're gonna find a way through this. We're gonna push our way through this and we're gonna do it in a way that is out of the box 
and, and it's going to have an obvious solution. Now, who knows what would have happened if both women had said, oh, please save the child, then maybe or, he wouldn't have or please become, slice the child. right? Then, well, I think if they had both said, please slice the child, then I, and he had been able to not actually do right. that, he might have won some credit for not going through with it. Um, if that had been his choice, God willing. Um, but if both had said, I think you do have the, the real problem, but I think the sense of why does everybody who hears it say, wow, right? I think part of the answer is that he's not, af he's not afraid if, to ask. He's not afraid to try this, this out of the box thing. He's not afraid to try to tackle the real gritty, awful, horrible moments of life. He doesn't shy away from it. He's not too delicate to deal with it. He deals. So, can I just tell you that stands out for me? <clears throat> Sorry, I have a different view from you. Um, how many times we've seen movies where there are fights about gladiators and stuff like that, and they are killing each other, and then one is about to kill the other, and what do they do? They look at the king, and the king does this or that. All right? So usually kings are super ruthless in those in, in, in the Middle Ages and even before and, and in these times. So I think, I, I still insist, I think this move was brilliant because he was completely using his mind rather than his heart and let's kill. So I want to just pause for a second and expand the frame a little bit the way that our tradition would, would do it. Both the biblical tradition with Vaikats Shlomo and Vaikats Paro and also the rabbinic tradition. So biblically, biblically, this story is connected to Joseph and interpreting Pharaoh's dream because of Vaikats. And rabbinically, they're connected because this story is the Haftorah from the Cates, even though we seldom get a chance to read it, but we read it on December 16th. So that naturally raises the question, how to compare Solomon's wisdom to Joseph's wisdom. So Solomon's wisdom is, fetch me a sword. Joseph's wisdom, upon hearing Pharaoh's dreams of the seven fat cows being consumed by the seven thin cows and the seven fat stocks of corn being consumed by the seven thin stocks of corn is, oh, Pharaoh, that's the years of plenty, the good times. Seven fat years of abundance are going to be consumed by seven years of scarcity and drought and famine, and nobody's going to remember the good times. All they're going to remember is the hard times, and therefore we need to plan for it. Let's be planful. Let's be intentional. Let's not waste anything. Let's gather all the grain during the good years so that we'll have enough grain during the bad years and the hard years and the lean years, um, which, of course, is what happened. How do you compare Solomon's wisdom to Joseph's wisdom? What's the, the genre of wisdom of fetch me a sword to the genre of wisdom, let's get granaries going, so that we cannot waste one stitch of grain, let's save it all and we'll be planful. Planful wisdom versus, you know, ordeal wisdom. Well, I, I think also if I were picking a wise person, it would be Joseph, not Solomon, because Joseph is measured and thoughtful in his approach because Joseph um, sits back and thinks things through before acting because Joseph has a thoughtful response to what happens in his life. And Solomon is impetuous and impulsive and rash, and it, 
<laughs> I do. I love a Solomon. He's. I have a very Solomon. Like I love Solomon. Just you be clear. Married a Solomon. I married a Solomon. But I just in the Bible, I just find him like seven hundred wives. Like he can't. He has no impulse control, and it's just. <laughs> right, right. I, mean, I think that's so. It's actually a really good point. Um, I've mentioned before Andy Stanley a few thousand times, <laughs> and Andy Stanley has this whole leadership podcast about the most important quality of leadership is self-leadership and that we are all our own worst enemies and that we have participated in, this is all Andy Stanley 101, we have participated in 100% of our own worst decisions and that a leader can't be a leader worth following unless they lead themselves first and lead themselves well. And he talks about what do you need to do to do self-leadership. There's a whole podcast that among what you need for self-leadership is you need to lead yourself but you can't lead yourself by yourself. You need a team of colleagues that you can trust and other things. And that without self-leadership, then you're gonna just, uh, you're gonna just flame out. And Andy Stanley says he, you know, he, he'll be at home watching TV and I'll find another famous pastor who's a gifted orator and a brilliant fundraiser and very charismatic and very electric and very on top of the world. And because this pastor couldn't do self-leadership, flames out and loses this. And he says it happens all the time in ministry. It happens all the time in so many fields. And I think King Solomon is the biblical example of this. Somebody who was charismatic and wise or whatever, depending on your, your definition of wisdom. But he clearly flames out and he's a failure as a king because he doesn't do self-leadership. Um, and then you have Joseph who is this measured, uh, this measured response and planful for the seven fat years. Yeah, but want to, want, we have to put something on the table. Solomon is a king. Joseph is not a king. He's an advisor to whatever pharaoh it was, the king. So they are in completely different political, you know, situations and, and roles as a leader. Right. So, you know, you, Joseph can take this, the back seat a little bit. Right, so, but this perhaps suggests that we don't really do kings for a good reason. That the kingly, the royal response, which is, I am the state, I got, just follow my gut, follow my intuition, really doesn't work so well. And that what works much better is humility, consultation, collaboration, teamwork. I mean, I'm very, I actually uh, grateful for the conversation and, and grateful for the idea that what you would want, if this, if this, what the system would do better with than a king operating out of the gut and saying, let's come up with a trial by ordeal, is let's slow down the clock, let's have consultation, let's have conversation, let me learn more, there's so much I don't know. Yeah. And I, I know I, there's so much I don't know about the facts of this child, and there's so much I don't know about mental illness, etc. I need wisdom. And you, to your point, Elias, you can't do that if you're the king and you're supposed to know it all. And so maybe the humble leader is the wiser leader. Yeah, one, one, one quick message, and then you talk because it's your birthday. And um, happy birthday. Is that when you guys always talk about we don't do kings, it's interesting because I come from a different part of the world. I don't know if anybody knew about that, but <laughs> let's go and ask. I would love to ask Jews from Britain that what would they say? We don't do kings. You know, it's fascinating. Because they are so. born in completely different environment, and in America has been in democracy for what three hundred years, so it's 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 really interesting. And then my point is that 
We don't do kings. And what do Jewish people do? We recite psalms every day that were really written mostly by a king, okay, King David. And then we go to Jerusalem and we pray at the wall that was part of a, a wall that surrounded a temple built by a king. Yeah, that's great. But the king is God, not a human king. Yeah. You know, and I, it, I got enough problems with God as king, but at least God is... is no, but you understand right, what I'm right, saying. I understand, but human kings are more problematic. So I want, Dan, we're going to give you the first dibs on this because it is your birthday. Happy birthday. Here's the question I want to ask. What do we learn from this story about Solomon and the implied contrast between the story about Joseph, Solomon's wisdom, Joseph's wisdom? What does this teach us today about wisdom? Let's just do a lightning round and end with that. Happy birthday, Dan. You're on. Right, so I would say one of the... <clears throat> The real difference, I think, between uh, Joseph and Solomon is that Joseph always understood that, he, that he, what he had was a gift of God. And I don't think Solomon understood that. So, you know, it, it, like you say, he, he was very impetuous. He was very king-like. Um, and so I think that that's a very, very huge difference, even though Solomon was, even though the stations were, were, were very different. Um, the other thing I wanted to just um, to sum up also is thinking about the beginning of chapter 4, which says, Vayhi HaMelech Shlomo Melech HaKol Yisrael, um, you know, that King Solomon was now king over all of Israel. I think that's actually, there are three parts to that. It's not, it's not about the wisdom moment only, but it's about his first act of um, showing that he can actually take care of business. Um, secondly, that he can change. And then thirdly, that once he's actually been, been able to make that change, that he's now um, able to... Um, to uh, move forward and demonstrate that it's no, not only about power and not only about change, but also, but also, also about believing in God and, uh, and uh, accepting God's gift of wisdom. Michelle, what's the lesson? Um, I find both of these characters challenging. The idea that Joseph is somehow, you know, so wise <laughs> and, you know, he, he's, he very much takes advantage of the situation that he's in, which is fully in character with before. But Joseph's story is a story about a corrective towards growth, right? That, that his growth is sort of overcoming his past hubris, his past uh, mm -hmm. immaturity, his past difficulties with impulse control, um, all of those things. And I think that Solomon as well is about, um, you know, if you were to follow what I had said before, which is that he kind of did whatever made everybody around him feel good, maybe he's a, he's a politician pleaser, then it really is important, it's a growth moment, it's a corrective for him, that he now can listen to his own voice or to the voice of God inside of him and act decisively. So for me, I would say the lesson of both is that they are works in progress. Mm. Elias, yeah, I agree with you, and I think that would be it would have been interesting to see what Joseph would have done as a king, you know, because again, one thing is to be an advisor, say I advise and then I go to sleep, you know, I don't have to make the big decisions right. or anything like that. And um, so, I mean, I think they are both fabulous, uh, you know, leaders in their own way, and uh, it's not either one or the other. For me, it's both, and learning from yeah. both stories is unbelievable. Eliza. So I read the end of this story as a cautionary tale about what we think of as wise, that the people of Israel are swayed by an act that is just uh, lucky at best, 
and that it's very easy for us to be taken in by stories and by narratives that we don't fully investigate. And what's most important is that we take the time to really think critically and gather all the information and do our own processing mm. and that we're not swayed by the, the most popular vote on the thing, the most hip thing on the internet that we are really thinking and, and discerning and that will save us from, from dangerous situations and from dangerous leaders. Mm. So I, I'll end this way. Um, Joe, in, in Solomon's dream, he asked for a lave shomea, a listening heart. And to me, the leadership lesson and the life lesson is that menschlichkeit and leadership are about humility. Listening is humble. Listening is humble. When you're listening, you're not talking. When you're lave shomea, you're listening, you're like, what do I not know? What do I not understand? What can you tell me that would be, that would be enlightening? I want to learn from you, a lave shomea. So, and, and the irony is that Solomon prays for a lave shomea, and he does no shomea. He prays for a listening heart, and he does no listening. He just talks, whoop, oh, okay, done. And here's what we're gonna do, fetch me a sword. No listening. And to me, the moral of the story is, listen, be humble, and get good colleagues. Thank you, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom. And happy birthday, Dan.